Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now stand for the reading of God's word and turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in its wings, And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would make us all like little children about to receive a meal, that we would anticipate being fed. Father, that you would make our ears unstopped, so that we might hear your word, and hearing your word, believe it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be focusing only on the first two verses of this passage, but we've come now to the to the last couple of exhortations from the prophet Malachi. God has had mercy on his people, right? He's had mercy on his people and his servants by again pointing out their sins and calling them to repent and return. They have not honored God as their father. They have offered tainted and blemished animals as sacrifices. They've profaned God's name The priests have turned the people away from the law of God and the God of the law. They've practiced idolatry by marrying idolaters. They have accused God of evil. They've practiced oppression of widows and orphans and strangers. They have been unwilling to bring in the whole tithe. And they said, in summary, that it's vain to serve God. That's how far the people had moved away from their Lord. And all throughout the book, the hardness of the people's hearts has has been repeatedly demonstrated by those unbelieving rejoinders, those unbelieving questions, and their constant defensiveness in in, in response to God's exhortations. Every time the prophet announces their sin, they say, well, how's that true? Every time. To God's statement that he had loved them, they say, how have you loved us? To, to their disrespect of God, they say, how have we despised your name? To their offering of blemish sacrifices, they say, how have we defiled you? 
to God's rejecting their offerings, they say, for what reason? To their wearying God with their words, they say, how have we wearied him? To God's calling them to return to him, they say, how shall we return? To their robbing God, they say, how have we robbed you? To their arrogant words spoken against God, they say, what have we spoken against you? They are incredulous. This people has become incredulous. They are unbelieving. They will not accept what God has said about their sins because they are proud. All through this book, we have not seen a change in their disposition. We haven't seen them soften up. God has said there are still those who fear him, as we looked at last time. In verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3, there are those who serve God and there are those who do not serve God. But the people, generally speaking, have resisted the entreaties of the Holy Spirit and the, through the prophet. And so at the end of all that, what remains to be said? How will the book end? What, what is the final word for rebellious people? It, it is this, as, as it is throughout scriptures, it's this. The day of judgment's coming. The day of judgment's coming. And it's hard for us 21st century Americans to think of that in any other terms than just a caricature of old-timey religion. But it is the testimony of Scripture time and time again that at the end of the days, God returns to judge us. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's hard, again, for us to conceive of this. Even in the church, we become short-sighted. We live lives that often mimic the world, and we, we like the world. We do our best not to think about death. We do our best, although it's funny. Everything we watch, everything we allow into our eyes through the television is about murder, death, carnage, destruction. But when it comes to us personally, that's, there's a distance there. We don't like to think about our own death. And the deaths of others. There's, but there's a fundamental Christian truth that should shape every moment of our existence. It is appointed for men to die once and then judgment. It is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. Solomon in his deathbed confession after living a life of seeking uh, for meaning and everything under the sun writes the conclusion when all has been heard is this fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil and the son of God our savior said this But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats will be on his left. Some of us here today give no thought to what happens after you die. Thinking that there will be nothing. Thinking there will be no consciousness that this life is all there is. right? And because you think that way, you numbly and quite dumbly sleepwalk through every waking moment of this life. right? You, you do whatever you like. You think whatever you want to think. You indulge yourself in whatever you want to indulge yourself in. You, you, in a nutshell, you're unable to see any necessity for a savior. And so you have no thought for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To you, you're here today not because you want to thank your savior, savior Jesus Christ for transferring you out of the domain of darkness and rescuing you from eternal punishment. You're just here to pass time. All religion is a silly game to you. It's wishful thinking for stupid people who can't come to terms with the fact that this life is all there is. You follow the teachings of your inspirational guru, John Lennon, no hell below us, above us only sky. What an idiot. But he's your idiot. You aren't ready for death or for the day of judgment. You think you are enlightened. You think you are modern. You think you're educated. But all you are is not ready. Not ready. Not ready to stand before the almighty and mysterious God. That day, as our passage teaches, is coming. It's coming. There is a slow train coming. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise... We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. On that day, on that great day, this is the promise from the Lord. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze. 
We're so numb to this teaching of God, this teaching of God's word, that his judgment will involve eternal conscious torment for those who reject his son. We've, we've seen too many far side you know, cartoons making light of hell. And the devil, we've, we've concurred with our intellectual elites in this country that anyone who believes in a day of judgment or a God who judges or a physical hell is a backwoods hick from the flyover portion of this country. People in Nebraska may believe in hell and God, but New Yorkers have been educated away from such foolish superstitions. This is the truth of scripture. There is a God who created this world as a dwelling place for man. Man rebelled and rejected God's holiness and death entered the world. God made a way of salvation through his son and after our death comes judgment. And those who believe in Christ will be saved and those who reject Christ will be damned. Are you embarrassed that I would talk about such things in church? And this is a Christian church, isn't it? How in the world could I not teach on this? This is the only thing I should ever teach. Isn't that what it's all about? The teaching of Scripture is not primarily about how to love people. It is about the problem of the unchanging holiness of God. You may dismiss this as a horrible explanation of the world. You may dismiss the scripture as a terrible um, explanation of your experience in this world. So, So if you do, just go get in bed with Nietzsche. Go get in bed with Nietzsche and proclaim God is dead and get to work figuring out how you are going to overcome the problem of God's holiness. The problem of sin. Figure out your ethics, not from the mind of God Almighty, but from the minds of mere men, most of whom ended their lives having lost their minds and alone. Or go get in bed with Darwin. Right? Proclaim God never was. And delude yourself with the view that all that is in this universe is chemicals. Materials that fashion themselves into things like people who have consciousness and imaginations and dreams. Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, heat, light, gravity. Try to get along with people when you believe that they are just sacks of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Go get in bed with your sage college professors. Proclaim God is evil and determine that your life goal is to profess that what is good is evil and what is evil is good. That male is female and female is male. That up is down and down is up. That black is white and white is black. And what you will live your life doing is living to contradict God's reality. But know this. Know this, the word of God says that a day of judgment is coming and the arrogant will be burned like chaff. Chaff burns easily, doesn't it? It burns hot. 
right? Pick up a pile of chaff, throw it over an open flame, and you'll see an explosion of quick heat and then gone. That is the image God used to speak of unbelievers on the day of judgment. Chaff. Chaff in unquenchable fire. And you can remain stubbornly bedded with Nietzsche and Darwin and and Professor So-and-so who had a terminal grief from an Ivy Leaves school and determine that, you know, that, that meant since she had that degree she could speak definitively about the meaning of everything. You can remain stubbornly bedded with such fools or you can hear the word of God. And begin to think rightly about everything. You will begin to think after God. Right? You will begin to think after God's thoughts. Seeing through new eyes. You will see a benevolent father who created the worlds. Who flung the stars in the sky. Who fashioned skins of animals for his fallen creatures. Who counseled and covenanted with himself to save us who knows us, who loves us, and you can spend the rest of your days, think of this, acknowledging him as God and thanking him. Or you can go hug a tree, praise the productive qualities of the primordial ooze, and kick your neighbor in the shin just before you stick a needle in your own arm. No right, no wrong, no ethics, just material. No God, no judgment. It's turning the whole world into a no-judgment zone. It's dismal and depressing, isn't it? Those worldviews. But this is what some of you believe. And the only thing keeping you from losing your mind because you are so afraid to die is that you are sufficiently entertained. You're sufficiently entertained. It's astonishing to think about, isn't it? The next season of Game of Thrones is keeping many people sane and pressing forward in this life. The next NFL season is enough to brighten one's outlook. That's a radically flimsy grasp on sanity. I mean, think about it. Some people are conscious that the day of judgment is coming and that... That, you know, that motivates their reliance upon and love of God, acceptance of his son, and sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Some people are given hope because the Cleveland Browns are projected to win their division. And it's the latter group who are said to be the sane ones. You'll get further in this world thinking that the Cleveland Browns are going to win their division and that there's a day of judgment coming. Christians are mocked as idiots. The day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment is coming. Going to factor that in? Going to think about that at all? You think you have solidity in your philosophy, but God will leave you by, winnow- by his winnowing fire without root or branch, it says. No foundation, no fruit. You will be completely 
undone. But for those who fear the Lord, our passage goes on and we're like, ah, thank you. But for those who fear the Lord, what about them? But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That, dear brothers and sisters, is one of the brightest, happiest, most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. Right? Think of those two images, the healing effects of the sun and the playful skipping of calves. There's nothing as joyful as that. There's nothing. Calvin, reflecting on this verse, has this great exposition of the healing of the Son of Righteousness, which, as you know, is more than just a reference to the physical Son, but is also a reference to the Son of God. Here, here's what Calvin says about this image, with which I know my wife will fully concur. He says this. He gives the name of wings to the rays of the sun, and this comparison has much beauty, for it is taken from nature and most fitly applied to Christ. There is nothing we know more cheering and healing than the rays of the sun. For ill savor would soon overwhelm us, even within a day, were not the sun to purge the earth from its dregs. And without the sun, there would be no respiration. We also feel a sort of relief. I love this. We also feel a sort of relief at the rising of the sun. For the night is a kind of burden. When the sun sets, we feel as if it were, as, as it were a, a heaviness in all our members, and the sick are exhilarated in the morning and experience a change from the influence of the sun, for it brings to us healing in its wing. But the prophet has expressed what is still more, that a clear sun in a serene sky brings healing. For this is an implied opposition between a cloudy or stormy time and clear and bright season, during the time of serenity, we are far more cheerful, whether we be in health or in sickness, and there is no one who does not derive some cheerfulness from the serenity of the skies. But when it is cloudy, even the most healthy feels some inconvenience. That's what happens when you drive into Ohio, right? There's always a bank of clouds over Ohio, summer winter. I mean, when we were traveling down here to candidate, you know, so between South Carolina and, and Ohio, I mean, it's like right at the Ohio River. It'd go cloudy. Sun would be shut off. I don't, I don't get it. Enjoy that. Um, but this is true. I mean, I think we all know this. When, when things, when things are, are, when there's heaviness on us, and the night comes, the heaviness is heavier, right? And it's in the morning when the sun arises, um, the burden is released. Uh, I love that statement. The night is a kind of burden, and the presence of the sun brings with it cheerfulness. How much more then, right, the presence of the one who is sent by God to redeem his people? How much more cheering is the presence of the Son of God? In the book of Isaiah, we have this glorious description of, well, it's, it's the, I don't, know, I don't know whether it's the first or the second coming, but maybe it's both. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant And your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. I mean, that glorious light and brightness from God himself that the people of God will enjoy. And then in the book of Revelation, we have the unforgettable description of the consummation of the ages. And note, dear brothers and sisters, the two themes in this passage that we have covered in these two verses of Malachi. The coming judgment... And the sun of righteousness shining on those who fear God. Right? Listen to this passage. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. What does that even mean? Earth and heaven fled away from his presence. Just they diminished to nothing in the glory of his presence. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Good riddance. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But... For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, all those who thought it was a stupid idea that there was a judgment coming, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And then this. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. The Son of Righteousness. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night, no burden. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know what, if it satisfies you to think that we evolved from some irradiated primordial ooze, I mean, I don't know what to say to you. If it satisfies you to think that all that you see just always was and never was not, I don't know what to say. Right? As for me... I believe that a personal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created this world, rules over it, inspired the words of this one book, all of which pointed us to the Son of God, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Give me that every time. Right? I believe it. I have known the healing rays of the Son of Righteousness. I've known those healing rays. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even as a wicked sinner. Right? I have known the God who created all things. I will not bow my knees to the ooze. I'm not going to thank Mr. Darwin. I will not acknowledge that we are a Cosmic accident. That's so boring. 
It's so shallow. It's so, it, it's so incapable of explaining the world and everything in it. God is personal, loving, fully committed, really there. He's perfect. He's knowable, right? He's revealed. And he made us to know him. In him we move and have our being. Word of God says this, and it's 100% true, the very word of God. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, So he made from one man, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, listen, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because, why? Why should all men everywhere repent? Repentance is not entertaining. Repentance is not fun. Repentance is painful. Well, this is why it says God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the proof. Jesus was dead and then he was alive believe believe you'll be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun and you'll have new eyes to see everything in more glorious terms it'll be like the color turns on and you've been living black and white your whole lives 